Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, Rhetoric is designed to move men's feelings in the direction of a goal. As such, it is concerned not with abstract individuals, but with men in being. Moreover, these men in being, it has to consider in relation to forces in being. Rhetoric begins with the assumption that man is born into history. If he is to be moved, the arguments addressed to him must have historicity as well as logicality. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. dialectic? What is rhetoric? What do dialectic and rhetoric have to do with one another? And what have they to do with culture? Today we continue our Exploring Weaver series with Dr. Jim Tolman. Dr. Tolman is rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tolman, fantastic to have you back. Well, I'm just pleased as punch to be back, and I really like what you're doing, uh, producing this little introduction to Weaver series, and I've never done a podcast before, and this is a real treat. I was preparing for our talk today, you know, and I found on the edifice metaphor page of the rhetoric ring, down toward the bottom, there's just a little inconspicuous link to a quotation from an essay by Weaver called The Image of Culture, which is from the Visions of Order. I've been pushing Visions of Order quite a bit. Well, we're going to talk about culture per se, and the image of culture is on our list. But when I read that quote, I was reminded of our discussion and distinction and hierarchy. And I, I thought, you know, this would be a perfect opportunity before we get underway this morning to bridge our discussion of distinction and hierarchy with our upcoming discussion of culture. And ultimately, this all is going to serve the purpose of understanding from a Weaverian point of view what it means to be a doctor of culture, to diagnose societal ills, and prescribe cures for those societal ills. And of course, that's a primary concern for us all in this time. And for Lutheran Christians who are interested in having a part in the redemption of society for the life of the world, to have a peaceable and orderly culture that will produce people that are of substance and also who have equilibrium in their lives, who can maintain balance and not become psychotic, not to put too much of a dramatic twist on it, but, you know, psychoses do accelerate when society is out of kilter. When you start doing cultural critique, it's real easy to just use sweeping generalizations that really smack of conspiracy theories and the like, but it's just that 
you have to have some means of talking about those trends and the influences in society that lead to social decay and the disillusion and the ripping of the social fabric and choose your cliche. But anyway, the image of culture quotation that you will find on the rhetoric ring at the bottom of the edifice metaphor page says true style displays itself in elaboration, rhythm, and distance, which demand activity of the imagination and play of the spirit. Elaboration means going beyond what is useful to produce what is engaging to contemplation. Rhythm is a marking of beginnings and endings. In place of a meaningless continuum, rhythm provides intelligibility and the sense that the material has been handled in a subjective interest. It is human to dislike mere lapse. When one sees things in rhythmical configuration, he feels that they have been brought into the realm of the spirit. Rhythm is thus a way of breaking up nihilistic monotony and of proclaiming that there is a world of value. I have to repeat that. Rhythm is thus a way of breaking up nihilistic monotony and of proclaiming that there is a world of value. Not when you're talking about values, but when you're talking about truth, beauty, and goodness. When you do that discussion in a rhythmic fashion, that's one very subtle way of providing emphasis where it's needed and where a person provides emphasis, it presupposes that those ideas are valued above the endless parade of ideas that we discuss and discuss. Distance, back to Weaver, that was Tallman. Distance is what preserves us from the vulgarity of immediacy. He has some beautiful treatment. I think we'll probably talk about that in the importance of cultural freedom, that the Jacobin is the vulgar person who rips away the veil of decency and demands immediate gratification, right? So the vulgarity of immediacy, think of it that way. Distance is what preserves us from the vulgarity of immediacy. Extension and proportion in space, as in architecture, distinction and hierarchy, and extension in time, as in manners and deportment, help to give gratifying form to these creations. All style has in it an element of ritual, which signifies steps which cannot be passed over. These are significant keys, Jocelyn, to cultivating civil society. And nobody talks about it better than Richard M. Weaver. I agree wholeheartedly. Shall we dive in? Yes, ma'am. I'm starting the second paragraph of our first essay, The Cultural Role of Rhetoric. Now, both of these 
essays form a complement. The cultural role of rhetoric and the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric are a complement in Weaver that fully discuss why the general semanticists could be understood as pure dialecticians. What is the problem with pure dialectic, which we'll get to immediately here. And although we won't be vulgar about it <laughs> in our immediacy, right. the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the two essays complement one another. And so they are assigned in our rhetoric studies at Wittenberg Academy because they show clearly the relationship between dialectic and rhetoric, the cultural role of rhetoric, obviously, and they're based on Platonic dialogues. And since we're a classical institution, we try to emphasize readings in primary sources like Platonic dialogues. So there's a lot going on in these two essays. So like you were trying to encourage me, we better get to it. The second paragraph starts, Rhetoric is involved along with memory in this trend because rhetoric depends upon history. All right, better elaborate very quickly there. This essay, The Cultural Role of Rhetoric, is found in Languages Sermonic. One of the cool things that the editors, Richard Johannesson, Bernard Strickland, and Ralph T. Eubanks did when they put this collection of Weaver essays together is they actually communicated with Weaver about um, each of the essays. And they include a brief introduction to the essay, but also a little snippet of correspondence between Ralph T. Eubanks and Richard M. Weaver. So this is dated September 2nd, 1959. I am struggling along with a book manuscript long in arrears. Perhaps I should mention that one chapter of this book is entitled The Cultural Role of Rhetoric. In this, I try to prove the proposition that in the social realm, dialectic unaided by rhetoric is subversive. Then I try to show that modern or general semantics is a modern attempt to exalt pure dialectic at the expense of traditional rhetoric, and that this is one of the things eating away the fiber of our society. I read that because I really like the way he says he's attacking the general semanticists because their school of thought is eating away at the fiber of our society. That is such a that picture. Yes, it certainly is. And what he's talking about here, rhetoric is involved along with memory in this trend because rhetoric depends upon history. Okay, so if you go to the rhetoric ring and you click on the Richard Weaver page, there's a kind of a little shrine to Richard Weaver on the rhetoric ring. And that quote I just read is also linked to this page, Weaver on Cultural Style. But it also, yes, Rhetoric, the Most Humane of the Humanities. That's a very graphic page that I put together, meaning it's got a nice picture of how rhetoric is central to, but also depends upon dialectic and ethics, according to Aristotle. Poetics for its stylistic elements and excellence, 
which is involved in peaking the imagination, which stirs the emotions, which moves the soul. And history is also included there because, as Weaver points out, rhetoric does not work in vacuo. Rhetoric depends upon historical arguments or historicity because abstract arguments don't really move people to action, and the aim of rhetoric is action. The aim of persuasion is to get people to act on the propositions that are under discussion. Psychology is included, law, politics, and religion. I won't go into that because I just cited the page, and a person can go there very easily and find it. That's linked at the Tribute to Richard M. Weaver page, and it's called Rhetoric, colon, the most humane of the humanities. So back to the essay, he says, rhetoric is involved along with memory in this trend because rhetoric depends upon history. The trend is the trend toward modernity, remember Weaver was writing in the 1950s, and he was attacking modernity. We're concerned about postmodernity nowadays. But he was noting that this genuflecting to progress and science and reason that produced scientism and rationalism was a trend that was going to dissolve the Western tradition if we weren't careful, okay? And rhetoric is a hedge against that along with dialectic and memory. And if you think about it, people who are very progressive do not care that much for memory. I just realized what an obvious statement that is today with all the (laughs) statues coming down, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so... I'm going to stop elaborating now. Do you have something to say? Go ahead. No, I, I was actually going to bring up that exact point that this is exactly what we are living right now. The destruction of memory, and we're going to get into this, but I think you are going to prove in your argument that that is coupled with the pure dialectician. Yes. Yes. Weaver attempts to utilize Socratic dialogues to bolster his idea that pure dialectic or dialectic alone in the social realm is subversive. Now that begs a question. Subversive of what? This is very important to understand. Subversive of cultural cohesion. The bonds of society are broken down if you emphasize and pursue dialectic by itself. Because dialectic has a tendency to break down, break down truths, break down propositions, and value propositions that form core values that have the tendency to help society cohere are broken down if you're always picking them apart. Okay, now, I did not say that nearly as eloquently as Richard Weaver did, but we need to move on here because I've only discussed one sentence. I did read a 
pretty dandy quote, though, from The Image of Culture, but that's not the essay we're discussing today. All questions that are susceptible, Weaver goes on, all questions that are susceptible to rhetorical treatment arise out of history, and it is to history that the rhetorician turns for his means of persuasion. Now, simultaneous with the loss of historical consciousness, okay, that's the trend he mentioned earlier, this loss of historical consciousness comes when we're always seeking progress, looking to the future without reference to the past, and so on, with persuasive that man should dispense with persuasive speech and limit himself to mere communication. Entree, the general semanticists. Their goal, just so you know, the general semanticists were a school of thought that was very popular in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And S.I. Hayakawa was one of the primary figures uh, or scholars in that movement. And essentially, they believed that Wars could be abolished if understanding were promoted. And the best way to promote understanding for the general semanticists was to rid language of all nuance, emotive aspects, and anything tending toward exaggeration, right? So we need to purify language in order to do away with misunderstandings, in order to do away with war. So it's a nice motive. It's, uh, you know, good intention, right? Where do those lead? Right. Okay, I'm. that's a good setup. Now listen to Weaver develop this. It's brilliant the way he develops it. And I don't mean just in this paragraph. I mean everything we're going to talk about today. Now, simultaneous with the loss of historical consciousness, there emerges a conviction that man should dispense with persuasive speech and limit himself to mere communication. Viewed in the long perspective, this must be considered a phase of the perennial issue between rhetoric and dialectic. But great danger lies in the fact that the present attitude represents a victory for a false conception of the role of dialectic in cultural life. States and societies cannot be secure unless there is in their public expression a partnership of dialectic and rhetoric. Dialectic is abstract reasoning upon the basis of propositions. Rhetoric is the relation of these terms to the existential world in which facts are regarded with sympathy and are treated with that kind of historical understanding and appreciation which lie outside the dialectical process. In other words, to simplify that for the listeners, dialectic is kind of a surgical treatment of propositions that are debatable. Rhetoric gives the desire to embrace those propositions which we hold to be true after they've been subjected to dialectical scrutiny. Does that make sense? Yes. So just to clarify, dialectic is not evil or bad. Mm -mm. No, but it is destructive if it gets out of its place. I mean, Lutherans should really understand this in terms of like the two kingdoms. You don't want to, they're, they're both important, and you don't want to conflate them because that creates all kinds of pernicious problems. Right. So with dialectic and rhetoric. 
dialectic is important and rhetoric is important. Rhetoric is way more important than most people give it credit for. Most people think rhetoric is just an add-on that you take the truth that logic establishes and then you dress it up a little bit to make it appealing. Right. There, and that's true of one aspect of rhetoric. One aspect of rhetoric is designed to beautify the truth so that it's desirable. But the whole idea of rhetorical reason, which is my specialty, the whole idea of rhetorical reason goes so much deeper than that. It has to do with case reasoning, practical wisdom, and casuistry. There's a lot to it. But anyway, I teach this very systematically in my class, and I'm going to touch on that in the process of our podcast here, but we're still working up toward that. We are speaking more directly about the relation of dialectic to rhetoric. And so at some point here, I'll give a thumbnail sketch of how I teach dialectic. I also have an essay I can recommend too. But Weaver, Weaver discusses that very briefly too. And he starts by saying dialectic is abstract reasoning upon the basis of propositions. Rhetoric is the relation of these terms to the existential world in which facts are regarded. So in other words, dialectic and rhetoric are counterparts of one another, as Aristotle begins his rhetoric by saying. But dialectic operates in the abstract realm, whereas rhetoric is more case-based. It has more to do with particular people, places, and things. So, very, very briefly, a dialectical question would be, should one marry? Okay, think about that question. If you're trying to answer that question, you start immediately thinking of abstract propositions that you can bring to bear on the question. Now, should... Jocelyn marry Justin? That's a very particular question. And there's a lot more consideration of compatibility and various particulars about the people involved, the place, the time, and so forth. Does that make sense? Yes. All right, good. So dialectic and rhetoric work together, but they have different realms or domains in which they work the current favor back to weaver the current favor which rational and soulless discourse enjoys over rhetoric is a mask for the triumph of dialectic this triumph is directly owing to the great prestige of modern science Dialectic must be recognized as a counterpart in expression in language of the activity of science we can affirm this despite certain differences between them because they are both rational and they are both neutral. The first point we need not labor. The second is important for this discussion because it is the quality of neutrality in science which has caused many moderns to suppose that it should be the model for linguistic discourse. Oh, we're going to scientize language. I already noted that his thesis that dialectic alone in the social realm is subversive begs the question, subversive of what? 
And the point of this chapter will be the contrary. To give up the role of rhetoric and to trust all to dialectic is a fast road to social subversion. So it's subversive of social bonds. And that really is relevant to the trial of Socrates, isn't it? Yes. Because Socrates was accused of, among other things, corrupting the youth. How was he corrupting them? He was teaching them his method. His method is dialectical. And his dialectical method caused them to question core values of Athens, which seemed treasonous to the leaders. All right. By implication, then, here's some dots I'm going to connect that I probably shouldn't. But by implication, rhetoric is important to dialectic because part of its cultural role is to help reinforce social bond. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. If dialectic isn't as indifferent or surgical as Weaver claims, then you need something to add the what he called the sympathy or the, um, the love of the values that are important to the society for its proper functioning. And that's what rhetoric does. So that's why I say rhetoric goes way beyond just window dressing for logic. So by the end of this session, we'll have a very clear understanding of how that works. But first, my primer on dialectic. When I teach dialectic, I teach it as a three-step process, wherein one begins with the proposition and then pushes it to its logical conclusion, drawing out implications by asking questions. And then once you get to the first principles upon which the argument rests, you shine the light of reason on them and check for contradictions. Because as Aristotle says in his Organon, the most undisputable of all beliefs is that contradictory statements are not at the same time true. That's a statement of the law of non-contradiction, or as I learned it, the law of contradiction. So, three-step process. Begin with a proposition, push it to its logical conclusion, drawing out implications by asking a line of questions, and then when you get down to the bedrock, shine the light of logic on those presuppositions and check for contradictions. And the idea being you're supposed to reject that which has contradiction in it and embrace that which is contradiction-free. That is exemplified in the Socratic method, right? Platonic dialogues proceed in that fashion. You begin with a proposition. What what did you learn today, Thrasymachus? Oh, it was fascinating, Socrates. I was down at the city gate, and we were talking about what is the highest good for human beings. Oh, I can think of no other more important discussion. Pray tell, what did you learn? And then, you know, they, they go through a question and answer period uh, that may last 10, 12 pages, and they come to a conclusion, and then they refer back to a previous conclusion that was drawn, and they try to reconcile any apparent contradictions. So the Socratic method exemplifies dialectic, and dialectic, according to Aristotle, is a process of criticism 
which is to say it's used for tearing apart argument, to critique arguments, okay? So it is a process of criticism wherein lies the path to the principles of all inquiries. I love that. I love the way he says that because it really strongly evokes the notion that dialectic is a habit of mind. It's a faculty that if you cultivate that way of thinking and it becomes second nature for you, you reason toward first principles habitually. And so dialectic is very, very important to, to cultivate the ability to engage in dialectical inference. It helps you reason systematically down to first principles and to see the connectivity of ideas, the unity of ideas. That's one of the big advantages of liberal arts learning is it really underscores the unity of knowledge. And that's important today, isn't it? Most certainly. Because postmodernity is so confusing and there are so many questions and so much confusion. If you can have some clarity and a systematic way of approaching knowledge, it's such a big benefit. And I think, honestly... By the time we're done with Rhetoric 1, 2, and 3 at Wittenberg Academy, students have started internalizing that habit of thinking in that fashion. I don't think they're all the way there yet, but they have a darn good foundation. Certainly. And I have had parents attest to that in terms of how they see their young scholars developing as as thinkers. Amen. So the last thing I wanted to say about dialectic, my primer on dialectic is dialectic may also be understood as disputatio disputations. So I actually got to go to the seminary one time and teach this to some of the seminarians because they were trying to think of ways to enhance their Winkle meetings so that people weren't falling into the traditional way of debating that's adversarial and, um, you know, defensive. And so one of the things about a mutual search for the truth that is dialectical in nature is that people take their positions as arguable and they don't lapse into defending their position in terms of I am right and you are wrong. Uh, and it gives you context to engage in a mutual search for the truth uh, in a manner that emphasizes mutual respect as well. So debate, yes, but not an adversarial kind of debate, uh, more dialogical. Dialectical argumentation is dialogical when you're dealing with your neighbor or your fellows. Okay, I think that's enough of that primer for now. Because the real brilliance 
of these two essays is the way Weaver uses the trial of Socrates on the one hand and on the other, the Phaedrus, two Platonic dialogues. He uses them to illustrate his points. So let's jump in here. Here he says, this shows in a clear way the weapon that Socrates has wielded against so many of his contemporaries. He's talking about dialectic alone. Dialectic in terms of the pursuit of truth without any respect for community or context. You know, just an abstracted search for the truth at all costs. And in Socrates' case, at the expense of his family. You know, he was out discussing truth all the time and his family was impoverished. So this shows in a clear way the weapon that Socrates had wielded against so many of his contemporaries. It is, in fact, a fine example of the dialectical method. First, the establishment of a class, then the drawing out of implications, and finally, the exposure of the contradiction. As far as pure logic goes, it is undeniably convincing. Yet, after all, this is not the way in which one talks about one's belief in the gods. <laughs> there's, there's something wrong with what he calls the lack of organic feeling demonstrated in his discussion. It has about it something of the look of a trap or a trick. Have you ever been reading Platonic dialogues and you think, wow, that's almost like logical entrapment, the way he sprung that trap. Right. And now he's celebrating making them feel stupid. Right. He, he does that in the trial of Socrates quite a bit. And I think, well, and Weaver thinks, I think because I read Weaver so much, that Plato intentionally wrote it that way because he was trying to demonstrate, A, on the one hand, the problem of, pure logic at the expense of communal bonds, and B, he was also trying to demonstrate, Weaver actually makes this point too, that he was actually trying to demonstrate as well that Plato, while he is critiquing rhetoric, at the same time uses a good deal of rhetoric in his dialogues. It's just so subtle that a lot of people miss it. They celebrate his logic, but they don't really recognize the fact that he's using a lot of rhetoric in the process. The very rationality of his so-called defense suggests some lack of organic feeling. It has about it something of the look of a trap or a trick, and one can imagine hearers not very sympathetic to the accused saying to themselves, there's Socrates up to his old tricks again. That is the way he got into trouble. He's showing that he will never be any different. We may imagine that the mean and sullen Miletus, his interlocutor at this point, nothing good is intended of him here, was pleased rather than otherwise that Socrates was conducting himself so true to form. It underscored the allegations that were implied in the indictment. Okay, so... Weaver's actually going to go on and argue that it's possible that Socrates got what was coming to him. That's a radical move. 
in the Western tradition. From all of the presuppositions that we've talked about already, he's got a point. If it's true that Socrates was teaching his students to utilize a method that was going to undercut the social bonds of the society, a society that cares deeply about strong leadership in judges, lawmakers, and so forth, and the family. And to make them indifferent to those societal bonds is cannot be allowed, just like we can't allow that today, really. Right. Weaver's interpretation of all of this is pretty idiosyncratic. I don't see anyone else really making this argument. Well, I've heard it said, and I'll have to look up where I heard this, but I've heard it said that Plato was the first progressive. And if that's true, then how he is framing or how he is painting Socrates plays right into that in terms of this dialectical thrust. Yeah, I imagine I, I can generalize enough to hypothesize what that person intended that made that statement that you're picking up on. Mm-hmm. And if you take the Republic of Plato as his utopian design for the perfect state, mm-hmm. then sure, he's the first progressive. But if you have ever read the introduction by Alan Bloom to his edition of Plato's Republic, he takes a lot of that as um, satire. Sure. He, he thinks that Plato was trying to illustrate an absurd kind of utopian vision by taking it to an ex- absurd extreme. So, Weaver says somewhere that, you know, if we would read Plato with half the imagination he exercised in writing the things that he wrote, it would do us well. So (laughs) I think that applies there, you know? Yes, absolutely. But, but still, Jocelyn, a lot of people take him seriously. I think, honestly, Aristotle was more serious in his Republic about the plan because he's a systematizer. Aristotle was really trying to lay down a, pl- a blueprint for the perfect state. And uh, he did it by comparing a republic with various other approaches, oligarchy and, and democracy and so forth. But Plato is a lot more playful than Aristotle. So I think a person has to be careful about taking the republic at face value. Yes. He says, this is not the only kind of argument offered by Socrates in his defense. It is true. In fact, this particular argument is followed by a noble one based upon analogy in which he declared that just as he would not desert the station he was commanded to guard while he was a soldier, so he would not give up his duty of being a gadfly to the men of Athens, which role he felt had been assigned him by the gods. Yet there is in the apology as a whole enough of the clever dialectician of the man who is concerned merely with logical inferences to bring to the minds of the audience the sight of Socrates, which had aroused enmity. And then Weaver says, the conclusion of this is that a society cannot live without rhetoric because rhetoric provides 
the solution or the the flip side of a logic that is only formal and surgical and unfeeling. When you get into the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric, he equates pure dialectic with the non-lover, right? That's where we're, we're almost there, actually, which is a good thing. We're halfway through our podcast. The conclusion of this is that a society cannot live without rhetoric. There are some things in which the group needs to believe, which cannot be demonstrated to everyone rationally. Now, just a doggone minute. We should be able to base all of our attachments on clear, logical premises. Should we not? No. No. There are tacit presuppositions in our life that are heart attachment. They're called loves. And in fact, to logically critique them denudes them of their power to establish coherence and cohesion in society. Do you want me to say that again? Yes. There are attachments that we hold that are tacit. They are below the level of conscious reflection. And to subject them to dialectical or logical scrutiny decreases their ability to help build cohesion in society. Their acceptance is pressed upon us by a kind of moral imperative arising from the group as a whole. To put them to the test of dialectic alone is to destroy the basis of belief in them and to weaken the cohesiveness of society. Such beliefs always come to us couched in rhetorical terms, which tell us what attitudes to take. The crucial defect of dialectic alone is that it ends in what might be called social agnosticism. The dialectician knows but he knows in a vacuum, or he knows, but he is without knowledge of how to act. Unless he is sustained by faith at one end or the other, unless he embraced something before he began the dialectical process, or unless he embraces it afterward, he remains an inassimilable social agnostic. Society does not know what to do with him because his very existence is a kind of satire or aspersion upon its necessity to act, or it does not know what to do with him in a very crude, or it does know what to do with him in a very crude and unpleasant form. It will put him away. Those who have to cope with passing reality feel that neutrality is a kind of desertion. In addition to understanding, they expect a rhetoric of action, and we must concede them some claim to this. The action primarily that we're concerned with at this point in time is simply preservation of civil society. I think we're beyond restoration. We're now concerning ourselves with preservation. That's the action he's talking about here. People who have to act responsibly, reasonably, with justice, defensively in court of law, if need be, need to have 
a value hierarchy that they can depend upon and refer to and argue from. And there has to be some agreement amongst people of goodwill regarding that basis for civil society. I learned all of this from my mentor, who was a Missouri Synod Lutheran, Aristotelian philosopher, writing his dissertation on Richard Weaver. And I've learned it by contemplating Richard Weaver for 35 years. The Phaedrus and the Nature of Rhetoric amplifies the themes of the cultural role of rhetoric and at the same time provides superb commentary on the Phaedrus of Plato. So that's why we read both of them in our Wittenberg Academy rhetoric block. They're great essays. The kids get a lot out of them. And in fact, elements of all that we've been talking about surface in my historic fiction where I have St. Paul meeting Quintilian in Spain. And so yes. I assign that as well. It's an imaginative way for the kids to wrap their minds around these themes of the ethics of rhetoric, the cultural role of rhetoric, and how that plays into our faith worldview, which all of this is very important to Lutherans. Weaver more or less announces his intention to critique the project of the general semanticists. He associates them at the beginning of his conclusion with the pure dialectician. So the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric is a sequel of sorts. And that's why we uh, decided to discuss them both together. So let me just read that conclusion very quickly. In a summing up, we can see that dialectic, when not accompanied by historical consciousness and responsibility, works to dissolve those opinions based partly on feeling which hold a society together. It tends, therefore, to be essentially revolutionary and without commitment to practical realities. It is even contumacious toward the given, ignoring it or seeking to banish it in favor of a merely self-consistent exposition of ideas. Hmm? Rhetoric, on the other hand, tries to bring opinion into closer line with the truth which dialectic pursues. It is therefore cognizant of the facts of situations and it is at least understanding of popular attitudes. In brief, the dialectician of our day has no adequate theory of man. That brings us to the end of the first half of our look at Richard M. Weaver's essays on the cultural role of rhetoric and the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric. We'll dig in further on our next episode. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on The Wittenberg Hour.